0: Hi, Project 7 listeners. Andy here. I'm recording this message on June 12th, 2020, which is nine years to the day after David Burgert shot at two sheriff's deputies and went missing in the Lolo National Forest. And to commemorate that anniversary, Justin and I reconvened for the special bonus episode you're about to hear. But before we get to that, we both wanted to pass along our sincere and heartfelt thanks and appreciation to everyone who listened to this series, it uh, was a lengthy labor, but one of love, most of the time at least, and we are really touched to know how many of you have heard this and have told us how much you've enjoyed the show. Uh, we're going to keep working on this story, I think forever, uh, so if you have any questions you'd like to hear us answer or want to share any other feedback, or of course, if you have any information on David Berger or Project 7, please, please get in touch. You can send us an email at project 7 at flatheadbeacon.com. That's the word project numeral seven at flatheadbeacon.com. Or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And stay subscribed to this feed because we're going to be dropping some additional bonus episodes down the road. And of course, we'll be right here if any additional news ever breaks in this case. Thanks again for listening to Project 7.
1: Kellen Brown. I am the editor-in-chief at the Flathead Beacon, and I'm sitting here in person with the producers of Project 7, and I'm excited to have a conversation with them about a few different things. How's it going, guys? Doing Good. great. Good. How are you doing? I'm, doing? I'm doing great, Justin. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> uh, it's nice to see you in person. This week is the nine-year anniversary of David Berger Going Missing, and we're going to chat a little bit today about producing this podcast and a few things you may have learned and a few things that you're still wanting to know about David Berger and him going missing. First off, what everyone would like to know, I think, is what do you think? where do you think David Berger is? What do you think happened to him, Andy?
0: I think he's dead, uh, is the short answer. I think it's, it's not the conclusion that I want. Uh, Not necessarily picking sides one way or another, but it's, it's, you know, it's a sad thing to think about David going into the woods and choosing to end his own life. But that is the theory that holds the most water with me. I, I just, throughout his history, he had never gone any length of time without either running into law enforcement or if not law enforcement, then just Pissing everybody off that he came in contact with. He was, in no one's description of him, a person who got along well with others. Uh, And I can't imagine, especially nine years later, that he's not popped up anywhere. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not 100% confident. I say that knowing too that he could have escaped. It's absolutely reasonable that he could have gotten out of the Lolo National Forest. Uh, But I don't think he did. And and I think, unfortunately, he is dead.
2: What about you, Justin? I am, I think I'm 60, 40 or 70, 30 on him being dead. You know, deep down, if I'm being really logical, he's probably dead. He's probably somewhere in the Lolo National Forest. He probably died nine years ago. But, you know, throughout throughout the course of reporting this story, my opinion changed. And at, and at moments, I would think he, he that he's still missing. And there are people out there who do believe he's missing. Jason Larson, a former Project 7 Project Seven member, believes he's still alive. There are some people in law enforcement who believe he is still alive. One interview that stuck out to me, and, and we didn't include this in the, the main podcast, but it was an interview with Patrick Dugans, who was an employee of the Pavarolo Center in Missoula. Who interacted with David? We include a little bit of his uh, story of David in the second to last episode. But something that Patrick told me that that's really stuck with me, and maybe one of the reasons it stuck with me is that it was one of the last interviews I did for the for the podcast. Was that there are so many people just drifting through life, and you know he had this this great way of putting it. He's like, if you're out in the woods and you see a guy by himself in the woods, you're going to remember that guy. You're going to remember his face. But if you are in any major American city and you see a guy panhandling and he's like, hey, can I have a dollar? Can I have a dollar? Can I have a dollar? You might not even look at that guy in the the eyes. You might not remember what that guy looked like five minutes from now. And so there's a chance that maybe David is just drifting through life. Maybe he is panhandling in some, some city and he's a small fish in a big pond and he never gets in enough trouble for him to reveal himself.
3: I wouldn't be shocked if I was, you know, near a homeless shelter in any state in the West and saw him. But I think the mythology around him is that he's a mountain man. And what I find doing, it's like, oh, he also could have just learned how to be a drifter. And this is is the great thing about being a drifter. A guy in the woods, you pay attention to. Like if you're off in the woods, if you're off Mm -hmm. hiking in Glacier, and you see a random dude in the woods, you're gonna pay attention. Random guy in the woods. You're walking down the street in any city in America, and a guy starts to, you know, a guy is sitting on the curb, saying, "Hey man, hey man, hey, 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 you got, you got a dollar thirty-eight, huh? Can I get a dollar thirty-eight for-? You even recognize that guy five minutes later.
2: And then the other argument is that you know. People have said, like, there's no way he could be quiet this long. And I, for a long time, agreed with that. That there's no way he would not have gotten in trouble somewhere. At the same time, up until June 2011, he, while he had plenty of negative interactions with law enforcement, that was the first time he'd ever shot at cops. And I think David is... Is smart enough to know that if he ever does show his face in public again, he is facing two counts of attempted murder, two counts of attempted murder of a cop. And I think David knows enough to, to maybe not want to reemerge into public life. So, yes, I think there's a very likely or good chance that David's dead, but part of me does think that maybe he's alive and maybe he's still out there.
0: I'm going to just jump in for a real quick rebuttal. You know, I, I think. I like that theory, except that it, it to me, it assumes or it, it presumes that David maybe has his mental illness more under control than I think he does, because you're talking about a person thinking rationally. And I think the David that we see, especially toward the end, is not thinking rationally, is not able to control himself, he is not medicated where he had been before the paranoia has has just gotten worse over time he He sounds like a person who is spiraling and i I don't know that shooting at cops all you know I, I know that shooting at cops doesn't snap you out of having a mental illness sure and i I just don't see I, I i guess to me, your theory that makes a little more sense is the one that that perhaps he is drifting, perhaps he's in a homeless shelter where or worse there's there's a few different people who are ranting and raving about different things and and he just blends in there but i just i just he was not a flip of the switch away from being okay
2: no and and i i i if you ask me like you know what do you really think my my gut instinct is he's dead but there's still a little part of me that that thinks maybe he's just drifting through life and like i said like just a small fish in a big pond and maybe that's just a little bit of hope you know as you said It's sad to think that he just died that day and he just died alone in the woods and that maybe he took his own life or maybe he was shot. But either way, it's just sad to think of someone dying alone in the woods, regardless of what they did in their past. Uh, And so maybe it's just me projecting a little hope on the story that maybe David's out there. Maybe he's not hurting anyone and he's just drifting through life. As we talked is when we were reporting and when we were down and where the chase happened. You know, if this were a movie, the movie ends with the shootout and then the camera sort of just pulling out and revealing the huge landscape that David Burgett has gone missing into. And you don't really know what happens, but maybe the the movie ending, the storybook ending, is that maybe he's still out there. Which is weird to call it a storybook ending, but, you know, the movie ending, the dramatic ending.
1: And the, it seems the prevailing evidence is that he's dead. And more officers than not believe that as well. But there still is the issue of they haven't found the body. And it's nine years later, and episode six really hits on this. I mean, you know, officers saying they heard a gunshot. You guys talk to the folks that train the dogs. Uh, whether, whether they got a hit or didn't get a hit, it's kind of debatable. But in all those years, it's a big area but they know where he disappeared. Why do you think they have not found evidence of his body in all that time?
0: That's a great question, and, I, and we didn't really get a satisfactory answer to that from anyone, except to say that, that maybe he's not in there, and, and he did get out because they had such a huge presence of law enforcement, I, and I think we, we didn't get to this in the series itself. So the beginning of the search is controversial. Anthony Rio is not happy about how long it takes for the search to get started. Conditions are not great, so they don't get going right away. But in the days and weeks that follow, there's an army of people out there combing through every inch of that forest. It is really dense. It is really steep. But to think that they could have found nothing, not not anything... Even that that even sparked curiosity. They just found nothing anywhere, and that is baffling and and hard to explain. I, I I don't know if you have a better answer than I do, Justin, but it's it's hard to explain why there's just been zero trace ever found.
2: It it really is the perfect place to either lose a live felon or a dead body. Like it's. It's so dense. And when, when Andy and I were out there, we even did a little experiment where, you know, one of us climbed up into the brush and within a couple feet, you can't see the person. And, and so while I believe that there was an exhaustive search of that area nine years ago, it, it would have been very easy for David to escape and it would be very easy to not find a body.
1: Do you think there is a possibility that the gunshot was not a suicide shot and David perhaps made some distance between himself and law enforcement, but just didn't survive and is somewhere else in those woods?
0: 100%. That's absolutely a possibility. And I think uh, it was probably Rio as well who we talked to said, you know, it could have been him running down a steep hill and he trips and the gun goes off. Um, it could have been somebody else out there shooting. I mean, it's uh, it's the middle of the woods in, in Montana. There are people out there shooting at at, uh, at random things all the time. So yeah, it's definitely possible that that was not a shot to, to take his own life. And it is, you're right, also believable that he got a little bit farther away. And we talked to some people about the the type of wound that he could have gotten where it maybe didn't necessarily start bleeding right away. I guess not everywhere you get shot just starts dripping blood immediately. So, I mean, maybe he got hurt and ran miles away and then had to, you know, lay down somewhere and, and never woke back up. So that definitely, uh, definitely lots of different, uh, possible outcomes.
2: Yeah. And it's another thing. It's, you know, and it's something that Tony Rio mentions in the, the podcast that he, you know, he, he's a firearms instructor. He can tell the distance of, uh, of, of how far a gun is and, and he, or where a gun was fired. And he has, he has a theory about how far where he, where he heard the shot. But, you know, I think in most, of the, at least the examples that he gave us, there was at a gun range where, you know, it's like probably a straight shot. It's down this road. That's how far, you know, that's, that's what 500 yards away sounds like when a gun goes off this is rolling hills. This is dense forest. It could have been two drainages over and it might be echoing weird. So, I mean, the idea that like, Oh, well I heard this gunshot and it's over there and that's where the dogs keep going. It's the most concrete evidence that anyone has that David died that day. You know, the fact that dogs keep, keep going to the same area. It's the most concrete evidence that he's dead, but it's, it's also very flimsy evidence.
1: So what over the course of a year plus reporting this story and, you know, it had been written about before, um, you weren't the first to cover it. Um, it. It was probably the most exhaustive coverage. <laughs> uh, what did you learn that you didn't know before going into this? What was the most surprising maybe interview where you found that the story was moving a direction that you did not expect at all.
2: I think, you know, when we started doing this podcast, we were sort of going in thinking that it was going to be pretty sensational. It was going to be a portrait, the same portrayal that you've seen of David Berger before. The America's most wanted type story that David Berger was this crazed militia leader missing in the woods and that he's a survivalist. You know, I think that's the story that Media has told about David Berger for over a decade. That's the story that you know. Seven or eight years ago, when I first moved onto the, the Cops and Courts beat here at the, the Beacon, uh, and I did a story on the second or third anniversary of David's disappearance. My story was, you know, not overly sensational, but it sort of played on the same themes that David Berger was this dangerous, crazed militia leader lost in the woods. And and that story played on that same theme because that's what what everyone would tell you, that, oh, David's this, this crazy guy. But I think the moment you take the time to peel back the layers on the story, you realize that it was much more complicated, that it wasn't just black and white. There weren't good guys and bad guys. You can be frustrated with everyone in this story and the actions they took over the years. And so, yeah, I think that the thing that surprised me the most was just how much more complicated it was.
0: I think the most surprising interview that we did, and probably because of when it happened, to me was the very first one that we did. The first person we talked to for this was Chuck Curry, who uh, at that point in December of 2018 had just uh, uh, had been n- not long retired as the Flathead County Sheriff and was the under sheriff back when David was here in Flathead County. And to your point, Justin, we sort of expected him going in to say, oh, what a crazy story. This guy was out of control. He was a madman. We all feared for our lives. What a crazy time it was. And even Chuck was really, you know, empathized in some ways with David and said, you know, it was uh, maybe a little more complicated. And he was a little more understanding of that militia mentality and, and made sure to say that, you know, these people have a right to do this and get together. And, you know, wasn't. And there were there were other people we talked to later in law enforcement who did deliver us that, you know, this was a bad, crazy guy and that Chuck didn't. And he certainly didn't say David was a nice guy, Mm -hmm. but that he didn't come. It it, it didn't come at him so hard. It opened up to me all of those other questions and right from the beginning said, okay, maybe this isn't the story that we thought we were going to do.
1: Yeah, it was, it was much more nuanced than I expected when I was listening. And I think up until you kind of can see David Harden, where when he goes to prison, no longer allowed in Flathead County, goes to Yellowstone County, works on a ranch. Correct me if I'm wrong. And yeah, and it's it's almost like, oh, OK, he's not going to play by the rules anymore if he did ever before. And I didn't know much about that part, him going to that ranch and kind of having a blow up, but, uh, or the um, homeless shelter in Missoula. Um, Just the two people he interacted with sounded scared. And um, do you think that was a big turning point? I mean, not just prison, but not being able to make it when he got out, not being able to come home.
2: As was pointed out in the podcast I mean I think in prison when David was getting the help and assistance he needed, I think he was fine the moment he gets out of prison, that that lifeline is gone, and he also realizes that yeah, he has nothing to go back to you know he, he like so many other people who come to Montana, really loved this place, but I think he was probably frustrated that he couldn't couldn't make a life for himself here that he was just struggling to get by and that in some ways he was in many ways he was worse off when he left prison he didn't have a home he was just living out of his car he had nothing to look forward to no a lot of the people who he was who he was close with in the early 2000s had turned their back on him all the people in project 7 no one would associate with him he had nothing and so i think that he was he was in a dark dark place, and so you can see why he would lash out in incidences like that on the ranch in eastern Montana at the Pov Center. He didn't have anything to to live for. He didn't have anything to lose.
1: And and not to interrupt, but uh, there also was a I think an important interview in the last episode where one of the officers I'm I'm not going to remember the name said they thought David knew this was going to happen, like. David knew a law enforcement officer was going to come and he knew where he was going to drive to and he knew he was going to open fire. Do you agree with that theory, I guess? That's
0: a, such a baffling part because – for me in particular because it doesn't it, – it's hard to square that with then the idea that he goes and, uh, and dies in the forest and takes his own life because it, it sure looks like that. He's at the very least familiar. I, I believe he's familiar with the area where he's going. He's probably been to that particular spot before. I don't think he knew exactly where it was, but he knew kind mean, of in the general area where it was going to be. It is bizarre that he knows the cops are coming for him. That's a because it he doesn't do anything flagrant. Do you think
1: he knew the cops were coming well, for him? I, there's, I so
0: there's the part where he waves at. Larry Schwint and Will Newsom, as they drive by, hops in his truck, blows the stop sign, and takes off.
2: I mean, I don't think that's him. I think that's David having this sort of, this ingrained, like, fear of law enforcement. Not fear, it's weird that he waved, but, like, I think he just had this, like, fight-or-flight syndrome when it came to the cops, and that he just knew, like, they're the cops, I need to leave. At the same time, yeah, I mean, like, and we talked about this. I was just listening to the last episode. We talk about this in there. It's a weird place to camp. Like, David had to be smart enough to know that, like, it was going to attract some attention. Because if you want to, like, just go off in the woods of Montana and camp, that's literally the last place I would pick is a rest area.
0: Right. Highly visible off a highway rest area. Yeah. And <laughs> you like, have a Jeep just go pull off, you know, he could have camped in the spot where the shootout happened. Right? Nobody great. ever would have found it there. No one would have
2: found in there. And... I think, you know, the other interesting thing is, and, and the people who believe that, like, or the people who have mentioned, like, this could have been planned or it felt like he was planned, are, are law enforcement uh, officials in Missoula County. And they had the least interaction with David over the course of the story. Really, the only time they ever interact with David is for a few days in June 2011. And sort of going back to your last question about, like, this being... A different type of story, or there being two different types of, of stories that have been told about this. The story that you, you hear from law enforcement in Missoula County is that David was this crazed militiaman, and they sort of play into that very two dimensional good guy versus bad guy. You know, David was this survivalist, he's a militia leader, he, he's crazy, and you get the more nuanced image or a more nuanced story from Chuck Curry and from the Flathead County uh, law enforcement officials who who dealt with David for years, throughout the 1990s and early 2000s. And they, they you know, arguably they knew him better. And yeah, I mean, I guess it would be interesting to, to listen, to talk to Chuck and, and Dave again and be like, well, do you think it was planned? And, and my gut instinct is they would say...
0: I guess this other thing is I don't know why he would plan it. Right. It's one of those things where why. I guess what's the end game if you're setting that up on purpose? Right. What in if if he sets it up on purpose? What in his mind is then going to happen at the end of it?
2: Right. And that's the thing. It's like yeah, he he faked his own death once before. Like if you buy into the theory that this is a whole big game for him, and and he's he you know dragged him into the woods to get into a shootout to maybe fake his own death. Like, this is a pretty intricate plan. And note that the only other time he tried to fake something like this or plan out something like this was when he faked his own death in Flathead County. And the extent of that planning was to leave a fishing pole down by the river. Like, this seems like a pretty complex plan. If, if he planned this out, this is pretty complex. And I think it's a, maybe one or two steps beyond what David could pull off.
1: Um, let's talk a little bit about Project 7. Obviously, this story focuses on David Berger, but I'm sure over the course of reporting, other names came up. We don't have to name anyone specifically, but did you find anything out about what happened in the rest of the group?
0: Well, they all very quickly disavowed David and Project 7, and that sort of seems to be the thing that happens. Travis McAdam from the Montana Human Rights Network, I think, was the person who was most skeptical that that was because they really did have no idea what David was doing. That, you know, the leader gets in trouble, and it's very easy then for the other people in the group to say, oh, wow, I had no idea he was planning on doing all this. But Steve Liss, in particular, with the FBI, thought that, you know, there were. A bunch of people here, and and he and other law enforcement we talked to said they've even run into some of these people in the community since then, who say, "I don't know what I was thinking, and I don't know what happened." And I do think there is a little bit of that group think. And these are some of these people are recovering alcoholics. These people are not, you know, maybe not all running in in large active social circles. They finally found some people. To talk to, to hang out with, to spend time with regularly, and as anybody knows, you start to just assimilate, and and this is the thing that we're talking about. We're talking about screw the government. All right, cool, I'm with you there. And we're talking about all right, let's find these people's home addresses, and maybe you don't feel quite so good about that, but you know, it's your friends. Okay, fine, we'll do that too. And and the next thing you know, they're uh, the FBI is knocking down your door. So it it ruined a lot of people's lives. I think, and again, without naming any names, there are probably four or five people, not all of whom went to federal prison who were more involved in this than the rest of the group. Like I said, some of whom I don't think ever faced any consequence for what happened. But I think a lot of the people were just got carried away and got involved in something that, got away from him and, and ended up, uh, you know, Jason was not, I think it's worth noting too, not the only person who cooperated with law enforcement. I think there were a few who, when it got to that point at the end, said, okay, that's, that's enough.
1: Over the course of reporting this, is has anyone come forward with new information that didn't make it in the podcast that was interesting? Anyone provide some perspective after listening to some uh, episodes? Um, what, what have you heard as far as feedback?
0: You know, the thing is, and and uh, you can talk a little bit, Justin, about the, the couple of folks down in Missoula who we did end up including in the podcast, but most of the people I think that we've heard from since the podcast came out are people who just had run into David at some point. I talked to someone this morning who had had experiences with David Berger just in the community who had listened to the podcast and, oh my God, I remember that guy. You know, what a jerk he was. And I, that that's been, I think, most of it is, oh, yeah, I knew that guy or I ran into him at the grocery store or I rented a snowmobile from him or saw him at a homeless shelter. And, man, what a what a piece of work he was.
2: Yeah, no, that's why I think, you know, the last some of the last interviews we did for this story were with the, the two guys from the pub in Missoula. And, you know, I think they, they had literally one of they had reached out to me over Twitter. One of them actually photographed my wedding, uh, which was sort of a small world. He messaged me and was like, Hey, I, I know David Berger. I was at your wedding. Uh you both were. <laughs> <laughs> Some people listening to this podcast were too. <laughs> um but they they reached out and were like, you know, we we interacted with David in in June 2011. and I thought they were really even though we didn't play a ton of of their interview in the final or or second to final uh, second to last episode i think they helped add some color to that last year of david's life or those last months of if if david did die those last months of david's time in missoula in public life Uh, they added a lot of color to it and i think that was that was huge you know and we wouldn't we had that had we not had people reach out to us once it came out although i guess i could have asked my wedding photographer if he'd ever met david berger
0: you know, I, I, it's uh, the question we should start asking people we run into. And I honestly probably have started asking people we've run yeah. into since the podcast <laughs> came out. You know, I, I'd, I'd be remiss too if I didn't say that. There are people, we tried really hard to talk to as many people as we possibly could. There are at least a couple of people on my list who I would love to talk to. And, and I would say that Tracy Brockway is at the top of that list. I Tracy Brockway, remind us. Tracy Brockway is David Burgert's mistress. They were together when the chase in Flathead County began, when the chase in Kyla began. Tracy and her husband are credited by most people for starting Project 7, she and Alan. And Alan Brockway stops being part of the picture pretty early on in Project Seven's history. But boy, I... Over turned over every rock I could possibly find to try and track Tracy Brockway down. So if Tracy's listening or somebody knows where Tracy is, she's the one I think who has as much of an intimate relationship with David. And I think Jason Larson absolutely did too. They really had a kind of father-son relationship. And and even the people, even you know, not Jason, even other people mentioned how close they were. The other person who knew David in that sort of intimate way other than, you know, his, his family was Tracy Brockway. And, and she is kind of that, that big fish that we didn't quite get, uh, who I think would be a fascinating interview.
2: Tracy's one of the people I'd love to talk to. And then David's mom would be another one. I'd, I'd love to chat with. Um, we tried we're unsuccessful, uh, but Jamie Rogers, who, who did that fantastic story for the Missoula independent seven or eight years ago now did talk to, to David's mom. And, uh, and we got, you know, we got some of her, her thoughts through Jamie, but I would just love to, to chat with her just to fill in more of that earlier life. Because I feel like so much of what happened in, in, in David's early years influenced what happened throughout his whole life. And so it would just be fascinating to talk to her just to fill in some of those, those holes.
1: Well, you guys have to be mostly happy with how everything turned out. I, I thought it was excellent. Uh, I've heard a ton of great feedback from people who don't normally listen to podcasts and I I think that's a credit to your guys' reporting and how local this issue was in a lot of ways. A lot of folks in Western Montana who may not download podcasts like we do in the newsroom did so and uh, I I think that's awesome. Anything else that you learned over the last year of uh, reporting this and and that you're kind of taken away
2: from the project? When we started working on this podcast in late 2018, 2019, early 2019, we initially thought it would take three, four, maybe six months to produce. Oh, I remember. (laughs) (laughs) It took 18 months to produce. But in some ways, I think having it come out when it did in 2020 was perfect because while this is a very different story than what's happening in, in the world right now, Um, some of the themes in this story can be seen in some of the major news events that are happening in the world right now. Um, You know, countries currently having a very intense conversation about the role of law enforcement in society. There are themes of that in this story. There are themes about a mistrust of the government in general, about the government going, you know, there are people who believe the government has gone too far in the response to So the coronavirus, and I think that there's themes of, of, yeah, mistrust of the federal government in this podcast. And early on, two two months ago now, when when there was a very vocal and angry reaction by some people and some groups to what the, you know, to shutting down the government, to people calling, uh, you know, the governor and other public officials dictators and stuff. I had a lot of friends who were like, I can't believe people are saying that. And Andy and I had been fifteen months in the middle of reporting about anti-government militias, and my reaction was, "Well, of course they're saying that. I've been waiting for this to happen. Like, I'm surprised it didn't happen two weeks ago." And so, yeah, I think that's just one thing that it. The podcast took a lot longer than we thought it would, but in some ways, it came out at the perfect time because the themes of this podcast are themes that we're seeing in the news every day today. And I think it's just an interesting comparison.
1: It's a compelling story, guys. You you should be really proud of your work. Um, That's all I have. If you if you have anything to add, you can now. But uh, uh, thanks for joining me today. It's great to see both of you and all you folks out there. Thanks for listening. Anything else?
0: Well, thank you, Kellen, and and you know I just would thank everybody else who's who's listened to the show along the way. I. I will say that that more people have listened to the show than I think I ever imagined or expected, and and the response really has been overwhelming, and you know it it uh, it means a lot I think to to both Justin and I that that people have have liked this show and and have enjoyed it. So thanks to everybody who's listened, everybody who's left us a rating, everybody who's written a review, everybody who's told a friend about uh, about Project Seven. It's really it's really flattering and, uh, and we appreciate it.
2: Yeah. I'd, I'd echo that. And I, yeah, I would thank you and, and the company, the beacon itself for letting us do this. I think, uh, you know, I remember walking in your office 18 months ago saying we want to do a podcast and you just said, yeah, go ahead. And I don't think a lot of companies would just let two reporters go off and do that, but you did. And I think the end result was, was something special.
1: I agree. Uh, well, thanks for being here and, uh, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, Andy and Justin. Thank Thank you. you.